I'm Frank Rossi. Welcome to Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network here. I'm joined today by Brian Winka, Certified Sports Field Manager, currently the Sports Turf Specialist at Advanced Turf Solutions. We're going to get to him in a minute. And why am I having a conversation with a Sports Turf Manager, former Sports Turf Manager, now in the consulting and sales and service end of the business? Why am I having a conversation with that? For a golf audience or even for a northern guy talking to a native Missourian like Brian Winka? Well, I'm having that conversation because... It looks like, and I'm sure Brian's going to confirm this over time, that the climate's changing dramatically enough and the demands of our industry uh, and the quality and safety, particularly in sports turf, but it's just as well on golf courses, that demands of our clientele are increasing. And to meet those needs, we have to be and looking for innovation. We have to be innovative and we have to look for innovation. And I've always sort of, sort of felt that that was one of the things we tried to do with the Frankly Speaking Project is to try to be a little bit more on the cutting edge of where maybe we're not there now, but in the next five to seven to ten years might be the kinds of ideas we'll be implementing. Now, some of that, uh, it comes up in different ways uh, over the course of the episodes we do. But today, the conversation is talking about the combination of warm season grasses and cool season grasses conceptually, where the climate in the transition zone, and Brian will tell us this, I'm sure, that you really never have growing conditions good enough for one grass to do well all the time. And I think a lot of us on the edge of the transition zone, particularly up here in the hills of central New York, servicing the metropolitan New York area, I'm looking at the manifestation of climate change uh, happening right before our eyes with the invasion of Bermuda grass, zoysia grass, uh, more expansive green kylinga uh, coming into the Northeast all the time. And so Brian has been one of those guys, I would say, that sort of looked at his surfaces and saw them with a variety of different grasses on it that looks a little bit like lemons and is making lemonade out of it. And in fact, I would go even further to say maybe making an Arnold Palmer iced tea uh, lemonade combination, Brian, with the wonderful quality Bermudas that you've chosen and what you're learning about the bluegrasses from the research that's going on at Kentucky and Virginia Tech. And we're going to get to all of that as we welcome Brian Winka to the program. Brian, uh, welcome aboard. Thanks for taking the time to join me. Thanks for the invite, Frank. I really appreciate it. Um, and boy, what a nice long history uh, you have in this business, because uh, many of our listeners won't sort of know your name at the tip of their tongue. So um, native Missourian, uh, grew up laying sod, Missouri State University agronomy degree in Springfield, couple of stints on golf courses, and then where we met, and why don't we start our conversation there, Brian, where we met when you were working with the Chesterfield Valley Athletic Complex, I believe a 250-acre complex, uh, 18 baseball fields, 12 soccer fields, uh, quite a high-end operation. Talk about your experience transitioning from golf to that big sports complex. Sure. It's... uh... So coming from golf into sports, the, the growing of the grass was, it was similar, but the, the challenges are a little bit different as far as the, the traffic that you put in uh, on an on a athletic field. And then you look at the different sports, each athletic field has its own challenges, whether it's football, it's between the hashes, between the 40s, or soccer fields, where it's your goal mouth is your higher traffic areas. Uh, and then in your baseball fields, you've kind of limited as far as your traffic, but it, it 
each one has its own challenges, I guess. The biggest thing is I came from uh, most of the golf courses I worked at here. We had Zoysia Fairways, and then we had Cool Season Rough. And then when I came into the athletic side, we had Bermuda. And I had limited experience with Bermuda. I'd worked with it uh, in college a little bit. And the new thing I guess I had to get used to was we were overseeding with ryegrass every year into our Bermuda. And that was something that was a little bit new to me. And after doing it for a long, for enough years and, you know, we were overseeding 30 acres of plain surface every year. And then we would just spray it out every spring. And then we would grow our Bermuda in just to fill it in real quick, you know, over a three month period so we could put in ryegrass again. That kind of, I guess, you know, is what you alluded to, mixing the warm and cool season grasses. That's kind of where it started to take hold, where I just didn't think that ryegrass overseeding process really made sense anymore. Right. Okay. So there you go. That's exactly what I was going to say. I guess it didn't take you long um, to figure out the sort of uh, insanity sometimes of the overseeding process. Now, we've gotten a lot more sane uh, as an industry, I would say, you know, in, in years past, particularly in golf, you were hard pressed to find a golf course that didn't overseed uh, just to stay competitive, uh, particularly in the south markets that rely a lot on the snowbirds uh, flying down all the time. Uh, that got to be a big deal. You guys needed it for traffic tolerance on top of the Bermuda. So you saw having to spray it out. But you would also see the ryegrass persist in some cases, right? I'm assuming you were using Revolver to take Correct. out the ryegrass. Uh, was any rye surviving? Were you seeing any places where the rye uh, could persist? We were. So, you know, as, as newer ryegrasses were being bred, they were stronger and stronger. And, you know, those ryegrasses tended to hang on. And, um, you know, that ryegrass is, is pretty detrimental to your Bermuda. And so it became more and more of an issue each year. Um, and that doesn't even throw in the, the cost aspect of, you know, the amount of seed we we're purchasing every year and the amount of chemical. And so, yeah, the whole process just, it just didn't really make sense to me anymore. Were there fields in the transition when you first got to the Bermuda grass surfaces and you had the ryegrass uh, that you were overseeding? Uh, were there fields that you didn't overseed that you kept trafficking? No, I think we, we pretty much overseeded anything that we knew we were going to have late fall, early spring traffic on. Uh, we were overseeding uh, for the traffic, but then for the color, you know, everybody wants to play on a green field. Nobody wants to play on, you know, brown dormant fairways or uh, soccer field. So, okay, so that was the main reason we were overseeding there. Well, let me ask you, because a part of the question that I have here, right, is the, is the transition uh, for the traffic tolerance. Do you believe, I mean, so overseeding in some ways was a way of addressing the aesthetic demand. You're Correct. saying the Bermuda probably would have held up under a little bit of foot traffic. I think so. And, and what we started to see you know, as, as Google Images started coming out and you could see kind of a satellite view of, of what your field looked like, we were seeing in those areas of the highest traffic, you know, especially at a park and rec facility where, you know, we don't have away games, they're playing on the fields all the time, where we needed that overseed there to, to protect for traffic and, and added color, that seed never really had a chance to come up and germinate because we had so much traffic on it. So you would see these, you know, diamond-shaped patterns on a, on a satellite image of a soccer field or a football, and it just 
where you needed the protection the most, it, it was almost impossible to get it up with the amount of traffic that we would have on those fields. Okay. And so that was the sort of annual ritual of, of stitching in the ryegrass uh, so it would be available for late fall traffic. So talk for a minute uh, for those that, you know, don't have a lot of experience with this, because this lays the groundwork for probably the technology we are going to spend time talking about, the whole blue muta thing. Uh, talk for a minute about uh, what's involved in, in getting a sports field ready, because, you know, we have a lot of golf guys in the north experimenting with Bermuda grass tees in Philly, maybe a couple on Long Island. They're all using probably latitude 36. I think Mike Burkholder at the Phillies might have used um, Riviera or Patriot, one of those that might have a little more cold tolerance. Talked about when you start to overseed, Brian. W- when are you doing it in St. Louis? Yeah, so us here in the Midwest, uh, typically that that first of September is when I'm looking to start overseeding. Uh, summertime, you know, we're starting to cool off a little bit. Um, Bermuda's starting to slow down a little, but we still have plenty of green color. Um, it is an invasive process, so you still want that Bermuda to be actively growing so that it can recover. And we'll slit seed, and then we'll come in and um, either dimple seed or broadcast so that you don't get kind of that cornrow effect, if you would, across your field. Yep. Um, so that'll start typically around the 1st of September, depending on what the weather is here. And we'll go it, you know, somewhere between a – Six and ten pound per thousand rate uh, with using a perennial ryegrass. Okay, how long are the fields out of play while you're doing that? So again, like for us in a park and rec, we're doing everything in play. So I might Ooh. put the seed in the ground that day, and they're playing a soccer game on it that night. So we're not uh. for us. We're not closing anything down. I know that uh, you know the higher level that you get, you know they'll try and coordinate their overseeding with you know, an away game or, right. you know, the team's going to be off the field for a week to where they can get that ryegrass to jump. But, you know, the the high school level and the, the park and rec level as you get down to, um, you know, the, they're pretty much using those fields on a daily basis. And, and that's why what you said earlier, that's what you were talking about. See, I'm a little slow on the uptake here, Brian. This is <laughs> talking these warm season grasses with a northerner. Right, right. You got you to gotta talk slow so I can keep up. And so when you were saying those satellite images that showed where those traffic patterns were, that's what you meant when you said the seed had no chance to even get going because the traffic Correct. was beating it up. And, and the Bermuda held up but did thin. Correct. Huh. Correct. Huh. Okay. So, so yeah. listen, I want to go, I, 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 let's make this our last comment and then we'll, we'll go to a message from our sponsors. And, and I want to talk a little bit more about this annual process. Let's wrap up this annual process that you were doing. You know, you'd go okay. through this process, do it during play, try to sneak it in and then spray it out in the spring when we come back, I want to get right into the blue muta, but it sounds like there was an epiphany that you're like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. So when did you decide you weren't doing it anymore? So uh, around 2010 I, or nine or 10, somewhere in that, age, I started to try and leave the ryegrass in and manage both of those two. That's, so that's where I started the warm and cool together. Um, and depending on the summer, we had some varying degrees of success, but 
inevitably we'd, we'd get to the peak of summer, you know, mid-July and August. And, you know, St. Louis, it's miserable that time of year to grow grass. And essentially we would either get diseased out or just burnt out on the rye. And it just couldn't hang in there. It just, it couldn't handle the, the entire summer. Um, so we, that's, I guess, was kind of when I started looking for different options that were out there. The other, the other thing was I had a field that we had, we had overseeded with the rye in the, in the fall, came into the spring, and we, we were getting ready to transition out, spray it out. And we had done a couple other fields, and we were in pretty good shape as far as the amount of Bermuda that was there. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I was assuming on that one that we were also going to be in good shape. Well, we sprayed it out about 10, 14 days later, all the ryegrass is starting to kind of check out. And, you know, we got to a point where like, oh, we don't have nearly as much Bermuda on this field as we thought. So we we got a lot of uh, winter kill on that field that year. So then we had to shut that field down and reseed it to get it back playable. So that's, that's when I really started kind of putting things together that there's got to be a different way to go about this. Okay. When we come back, we're going to talk about that different way that Brian has stumbled onto through his own questioning the sort of insanity of the annual overseeding process, particularly in the sports field area. But we've already had some interesting conversations that I'm sure superintendents who are trying to have these Bermuda Tees in the north are already finding useful. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking on the Turf Radio Network. We'll be right back. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi here in the hills of central New York, joined by my friend Brian Winka, the sports turf specialist for Advanced Turf Solutions, a lifelong Missourian. You know, my dad was a big fan of Harry Truman. He, he, uh, we had pictures of Harry Truman around the house. Apparently, my, my father liked the idea that he was kind of a stern guy, but uh, knew how to dress. And I would say the same thing for Brian, not stern, but I've seen how he dresses. He knows how to dress like a, a professional sports turf manager, Brian. And there you were in that spring uh, trying to resolve the winter kill that you experienced on the Bermuda grass. Before we went to break, you outlined that, that sort of moment when, okay, it's time to try something different. So now you have winter killed, uh, Bermuda grass with a little bit of rye in it. The field's got to get shut down and you said you're going to seed it. Did you use a seeded Bermuda or is that when you decided to put some bluegrass in? Now, so, so on that field, we, we did seed Riviera into that field to get it back to the Bermuda base. Um, but then that's when I kind of started looking to see, you know, maybe I can seed a bluegrass or a fescue or something in that would be different than a ryegrass that would hold on maybe a little longer. 
So that's when I start looking at different in-tep trials, um, mainly on the, on the bluegrasses. Uh, because of the mowing height, I didn't think the fescue would hold up to an inch or lower. Um, so I started looking at bluegrasses, mainly like the Oklahoma in-tep trials, the North Carolina, the Tennessee, you know, the areas that were going to be in that transition zone that would be similar climates to what we had here mm-hmm. in St. Louis. And the HGT bluegrass from Barenbrook is one that really stuck out, had really good spring green up, excellent traffic tolerance and recovery, which were you know, those were the big things on athletic fields for me. So in 2012, that fall, I took one soccer field and we incorporated bluegrass, the, the HDT bluegrass, into that field. Um, it was a Riviera field? Uh, it was a Riviera field, yes. And, and the HDT and, bluegrass, let's hold on there for a second because, you know, I'm a, I'm a grass guy when, and I'm sure Kevin Morris is happy to hear us talk about the NTEP trials. Um, I do still think an excellent source for good, unbiased information. I know there's more regional trials going on all the time, but I'm glad to see that you used a sort of data-driven approach uh, to doing it. You you weren't necessarily uh, just trying to see, well, what company can I get the seed from? You obviously did some uh, background work. My understanding of the HGT technology um, and you know, I'm not taking any money from HGT, so I, I, I'm, I'm in a good spot to ask these questions. My understanding of that mix is that there are varieties that move in and out of it, but the, the key one seems to be Barvet. Correct. The Barvet is, uh, that's the, the key to the HGT, I guess. Um, okay. it, I, I don't know. I haven't seen another bluegrass that performs as well, especially under traffic conditions. Right. What about, um, what about those like Texas hybrids? What about those, uh, I think Scott's has got, um, uh, one in particular, there's a couple of more, uh, touted as more heat tolerant. Um, are, were any of those coming up in the tests that you were looking at or, or really was it that Barvet was just head and shoulders above everybody else? It was really the Barvet was head and shoulders. The, the one, the one downside, I guess, that you looked at on the Barfet was the color. So it wasn't a dark midnight green, but it was still a nice green color. And actually, to for what I was using it for, to blend it with a Bermuda grass, mm-hmm. it blends almost perfectly. Yeah, so that, you don't get that kind of spotted effect on your field. It, I mean, the color really matches nicely. So Okay. Um, so here's the question. People look now. at it as a downfall. I look at it as a positive. That's exactly right. And in fact, you know, the pursuit of these dark blue green grasses, uh, particularly the bluegrasses, ha- has made the poa stand out more. Uh, you right. see, you see the poa even more in these beautiful fields. And and you know, we know from high traffic, they're they're tough to keep clean. But I want to go back to the overseeding uh, part of this now, because this is a bit of a dilemma, right? You had a Riviera field, and you stitched the HGT into it, or you bought HGT sod and seeded the Riviera into it. How how did you initially start doing it? So the initial first field we did, uh, you know, we got the Riviera it all grown back, and then um, we just seeded in at a like a two and a half pound per thousand rate. Uh, with the HTT bluegrass into the Riviera soccer field that was there. Okay. Um, and it, it gave us decent results that first fall. Um, 
with the blues a little bit, you know, I tell everybody, it, you're not going to get the same results that you do with the ryegrass putting it out. So it, it'll come up, but it just doesn't spread, you know, kind of sprout and pout, I think is what a lot of people say on bluegrass. Now, was it doing that in the traffic or were you resting the field now? No, no, this was in traffic. So, so yeah, you seeded bluegrass into traffic. Correct. Huh. And that could have been part of the issue, too. But coming in this now, we went through wintertime, so we had a couple months off the field, and then into the springtime, the bluegrass just, I mean, it like exploded out of the ground. So um, we still weren't exactly sure what to do with this combination, this mix, I guess. And um, we made some mistakes. You know, kind of the thought process originally was we're going to manage it as a warm season, you know, in the summertime, but in the spring and the fall, We'll still manage it kind of like a cool season grass. And um, our fertility was, was kind of out of whack that first year. We, we probably over-fertilized in the summer, used a lot of quick-release nitrogen still, trying to push that Bermuda grass kind of the same way that we were doing before. So that was a big difference where we had to change our management practice as far as growing this mix successfully. But there's so many rich questions for me to ask, but you, you know, you, you know, <laughs> How much time do we have? Well, that's what I mean. We're, I want to, I want to do another three minutes and one or two questions and then go to our next break. And then, yeah, we'll have one more piece and then we're done. And that's going to be great because uh, people will be calling you at advanced her solutions and start to think about this on their own. So what's interesting is there. So initially the establishment uh, did not look good. And it was probably because, you know, the traffic and maybe the Bermuda was still growing and bluegrass just takes a long time uh, to get going. Now, did you get it into the soil, Brian? Because, you know, as a northerner, one of the things that always shocks me about warm season turf is that sort of rich mat layer you get underneath, right? The beauty of right. that Bermuda grass base is, you know, is that knitting that it puts together that you want for traction, right? That's really good from a sports field. And I wouldn't have thought bluegrass would have been successful at all in that, Um and so I'm wondering, you know, you know, waiting around for it to ultimately come on, was it also because the Bermuda was weakened in the spring? It could have been. We used a slit seeder, so we were able to get through that mat and able to make sure that we were getting good seed-to-soil contact. So you're right. That's, that's the key is to get through that batch, you know, that mat layer there and get it into the soil. I think... Just the establishment, as far as it taking a little bit longer, is, you know, people expect when you're overseeding that, you're, you know, you're going to throw a ryegrass out, and a week later you're going to have green all the way across your field because the rye, you know, you could throw it on concrete and it'll sprout up. But <laughs> the bluegrass just takes a little bit longer. We we had germination in, in about a week, but it just it, it just didn't spread as, as quick as what you would see. You know, and I'm comparing it to a, what – a traditionally a ryegrass overseed would be. So right. um, it came up and, and we, we were able to get established. It just was slower than a ryegrass overseed. And did it have the same traffic problems that the rye had in those places where the traffic was heavy, it was a little thinner? It did. It was a little bit thinner. But when we went through that wintertime period and came back in the spring, I had all intentions of having to overseed those areas. But we didn't have to. All, all the bluegrass that was there, it all 
came back. Okay, when when which was really surprising to me. Okay, well, <laughs> there's a lot of surprising things here for me, but uh, I do want to get this. I want to ask you one more before we go to a break. Before I get you out of here for the break, um, and and that is the the establishment again, because in my case, what I'm wondering is, and I know Greg and you said Mike Goatley are playing around with this, but in my case. I got a lot of bluegrass sod producers up where I am. What do you think the other way is going to be like? Because blue is also the kind of base you want on a high traffic area that has the rhizomes uh, for the cleats to get in. So, so I'm wondering if you've had any experience in establishment, we'll come back and talk about management, but in establishment where you put the Bermuda into the blue sod. I have. So that was, as we kind of started playing around with this for a number of years and we were having some success, we took a couple of the baseball fields that we had that were all bluegrass and we just kind of reversed the process. We took our slit seeder out and at about a pound and a half per thousand with uh, Riviera and we slit seed into the bluegrass and we were able to essentially replicate what we were doing on our soccer and football fields. And we were able to get the Bermuda to get established in a, uh, a stand of bluegrass that was already Excellent. there. So again, timing is going to matter. When, when did you put them in? When did you try that? So that was, we were probably mid May to early June here in St. Louis. Wow. Um, huh. you know, so we were starting to warm up. So we were beyond any kind of frost. We weren't worried about any of that. So yeah. Okay. Excellent. Mid, mid to late May, early June, somewhere in that in that time frame. Okay. Well, we're going to take a break and get back with our budding science teacher, Brian Winka, the sports turf specialist from Advanced Turf Solutions in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest dryject service center. I'm Frank Rossi. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking here on the Turfnet Radio Network. Brian Winka, the certified sports field manager, formerly at the Chesterfield Valley Athletic Complex, now the sports turf specialist at Advanced Turf Solutions in St. Louis. And Brian, we are well down the road on this uh, conversation and only a little bit longer. And I got to cover three things before we have everybody want to kill us for not covering more topics. Uh, first of all, we talked about the HTT on the bluegrass side. Looks like you've done some due diligence there. That looks like a, a good decision from, from your perspective. Um, but the Bermuda side, we haven't explored. And, and I think uh, offline, we were having a conversation and just for time purposes, have been evaluating Bermudas for this purpose and have found so far uh, Latitude 36 and Northbridge are, are varieties that you currently have uh, out as a Blue Muda concept. Take us through that. Correct. So, um, 
going into last winter, I was renovating a couple soccer fields. Uh, we got a local sod grower, uh, Gary Mickey at Greenfield Turf. He was uh, open to the idea as far as growing this custom blue muta sod for me. And so we essentially grew one field that was uh, Northbridge and HGT, and the second field was Latitude and HGT. He grew those at the farm for us. And it was about this time last year that we had harvested and, and laid that sod. Um, I like the newer varieties. They're, they're more aggressive. They're, they're tighter, finer leaf blade. Um, make a really, really nice plain surface. It's a little bit more difficult to seed into those varieties because of everything that makes them a really good grass. It's, it's hard to get through that mat layer. But if you can get them established that way, it makes a really nice plain surface. We had a number of fields at our at our complex, and we had everything from Quick Stand, Patriot, Riviera. We had some Yukon, um, you know, the Northbridge, the Latitude. So the older varieties, like a Quick Stand that we had uh, establishment, was easier because it is a the more open canopy. It's a denser leaf. You know, the leaf's not as dense. Um, it's easier for that bluegrass to get to the soil and get established, but. Uh, I still prefer the the newer varieties that are that are coming out. Well, and of course, as a northern guy, Brian, um, the northern ver- you know the the newer varieties that maybe have some more cold tolerance uh, improvements uh, are critical. Now, what I remember us talking about when I got to visit you a few years ago was how you noticed that in the summertime the bluegrass sort of held on a little bit longer than you thought. And maybe the bluegrass helped the Bermuda grass survive the winter a little bit. Can you comment a little bit about how these grasses have learned to play nice together? Sure. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a newer idea, but it is essentially when in the summertime, the, the bluegrass, you know, it, it recedes into the canopy of the Bermuda, if you would. It's still there. It's still alive but it's kind of taking a backseat to the Bermuda in those hot, you know, sticky summers here in St. Louis. But as conditions start to get right, uh, whether it's cooler in the spring or cooler in the fall, that bluegrass starts to come back. But the whole time it's there, it's, it's improving the color on the field. So, again, that aesthetics, you're getting a darker green having those two grasses coexisting with each other. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that we saw, and I don't have any scientific data on this, more anecdotal, but on the fields that we had interceded with the HDT bluegrass, we didn't see any winter kill. And on the couple fields, the last couple fields that were our control, if you would, as far as overseeding with the ryegrass, and we sprayed those out and then had the winter kill, you know, essentially it was the same fertility programs, you know, same location, same everything. And one field, we didn't have any winter kill. And the other field, we had significant winter kill. So... That's yeah. We're gonna leave it at that because that's just an observation. But wouldn't that be something? Correct. I mean that that would be a real big find. Now let me go and transition as we wrap up here. What you've learned so far in management? You know, you said Greg Munshaw is doing stuff. Goatley's doing stuff. They're looking at management. If once you get the stand established, and I'm assuming just for you know, practical purposes, you must believe it's a 50-50, or is it 70 Bermuda, 30 blue, or it does it always depend on when you look at it? 
ideally it's 50 50, but it is also, it depends on the time of year that you look at it. You know, if it's, you know, you go outside today and you looked at one of those fields, it's going to look like a bluegrass field. You know, the Bermuda still right. isn't actively growing, but um, the management part is the big part that we're not looking to give one, you know, one grass the edge over the other. Right. So we switched the way that we're fertilizing. We're going, it's more kind of falling back on my old golf days as far as we're spoon feeding. We're using, um, you know, different liquid fertilizers. Foliar pack was one that I used. Uh, and then on our granular base, we're, again, we're going to uh, a slow release, whether it's a nature safe or a healthy grow, uh, one of the organics, or, you know, there's some controlled release fertilizers are out there. But nothing, you know, we're staying away from the ammonium sulfates, the, the, the quick release nitrogen, you know, that's almost not in the program. Because, because, and I'm assuming that some of that is because if you give, Whatever grass is thriving at the time, if you give it a slug of N, it gets a competitive advantage. So it sounds like what you want to do is to just make sure there's enough N to keep the whole thing plugging along, but never so much of anything. And I imagine this is true for water uh, as well. Never so much of anything that, uh, you know, one grass starts to dominate, right? Because I would imagine... Over time, have you seen any shift in your longest populations uh, where one species starts to dominate? The, the areas that, and it, it's the exact opposite of what I thought it was going to be. So in some of like soccer goldmouths where you're getting a lot of traffic, um, I thought the Bermuda would recover and outcompete the bluegrass all day long. And it wound up where actually the HCT bluegrass handles the traffic even better in the summertime than what the Bermuda grass does. Whoa. Um, Whoa. And, and, and yeah, I know. And, and that's, and one of the things that uh, Dr. Munshaw at university of Kentucky is seeing, cause he's got some traffic studies there is that by having the, the blue and the Bermuda together, we're getting better traffic tolerance and better recovery than he is on just a Bermuda plot or just a blue bluegrass so plot boring. alone this is um, so there's something there and you know hopefully he'll have some some hard numbers out on on his research there but yeah the, the two together there's there's something there they're they're actually they're able to live and thrive with each other and it's just a great name right blue muta because that means my pal Bert McCarty can't say Bermuda anymore. You got to say Blue Muda. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. listen, Brian. Let's uh, let me let me get you out of here. But I don't want to get you out of here without talking about the future. It sounds like the future is starting to get in place with the scientists now trying to bring some data to the observations that you've made. But if you had to speculate, if we were having this conversation a year from now, maybe two. What do you imagine is going to be the essence of that conversation? Well, I, I think some of the research that started a number of years ago, um, the hard numbers, the papers, those are going to start coming out here shortly. And it really started as a small concept where it's grown across the transition zone. Um, I've got people in Indiana, Columbus, Ohio, Virginia, California, I mean, all across kind of this transition zone, any place, uh, an area where somebody was growing a warm season grass and had to do any kind of overseeding, this has really taken off as a, as a solution. 
And, you know, even though we started it in sports turf, I've seen it on a number of golf courses. Uh, the golf courses that have put it in, uh, I know they've, re- you know, again, it's, there's no hard science behind it, except for they're saying they're getting more rounds in the wintertime and they're getting more memberships at some of these private clubs because they've got green grass and everybody else has got dormant grass. So um, I see the, the idea, the concept spreading you know, not only in the sports turf arena, but to, to more and more golf courses. And I think for me, I think a lot about lawns where uh, in in the transition zone, in, in the climates up north where we have a, a growing resistance to the use of chemical pesticides and fertilizers, Brian. If we can find ways to install these combination mixtures, and of course there's also the question of Bermuda versus Zoysia, which we are not going to get to in this conversation, but I also see the future in in the lawn care industry being able to develop these systems that are much less reliant on inputs because a lot of the inputs you're using are for traffic tolerance, where most lawns that are just aesthetic, you're just looking at them. Correct. Yeah, so we were able to lower our nitrogen. We were somewhere about three and a half pounds of N per year. So that's pretty low inputs for growing Bermuda grass in, in the transition zone. So How I much think would you uh, normally use? Oh, uh, we were we were probably closer to six pounds. Whoa. You know, our, the old way when we were transitioning our ryegrass out, we were because we were trying to push that Bermuda to fill back in all the way. So you know, we we're going out at like a half pound of quick release every other week. You know, we're really, really pushing that Bermuda grass to get it to fill, but I don't need to push it anymore because I've already got a dense turf year-round, so there's no need to do that. So you can back the nitrogen off, and it's probably more agronomically correct to grow your grass that way anyways, and it makes a stronger plant, so then it holds up the traffic better. So I read in an interview you wanted to be a science teacher if you weren't going to grow grass for a living. Is that, in fact, the case? That is true. I actually, uh, after I got my degree in agronomy, I went back to school and uh, started taking some teaching classes. And uh, uh, who knows? Maybe someday when I retire from this, I might go into teaching. Well, you're, 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 yeah. Well, you're going to be banking the money for a little while, brother, on this blue muta thing. This is, yeah. I think, one of the better ideas I've seen in a really long time, Brian. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Frank. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate having Brian Winka, the certified sports field manager, sports turf specialist for Advanced Turf Solutions from St. Louis, Missouri, a native Missourian. I'm Frank Rossi. You're listening to the TurfNet Radio Network, and we'd love for you to reach out to us at TurfNet. Conversations are always ongoing in the forum. If you're a member of the TurfNet community, you, of course, can email the leadership at TurfNet, and certainly the conversation will can continue there. And, of course, on Twitter, at TurfNet uh, is the Twitter handle for our TurfNet Radio Network. And you can find Brian at Brian Winka. Is that where you are still, Brian? At B. Winka. At B. Winka. And you can follow Brian on Twitter. If you listen to us or subscribe to us on Google Play or Stitcher, we appreciate that. If you listen to us on iTunes, we really appreciate if you leave us a review. And once again, it's smart talk from leading thinkers and always a little bit of frankly speaking.